Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is a special Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. When it comes to Confederate monuments, there's not much of a gray area. Either it's reverence to a past that is rooted in honoring Southern heritage or symbols of a segregated and racial ideology that promotes institutions and theories of white supremacy and myths about the Civil War. And the reason they came up with was, well, we didn't really lose. And a very different narrative about what the war was about emerged uh, from the perspective of the losers of that war, from white Southerners. I was in high school before I learned, uh, really, that... uh, the South had lost the Civil War because the way everybody talked about it, we'd won it. Now, the Confederates say, we did lose militarily, but in the process, we won a moral victory. So how can you say that there's anything wrong with that? Just because you won, the Confederates say, that doesn't mean you were right. From the Atlanta History Center, a first an in-house produced documentary, Monument, the untold story of Stone Mountain. It examines how the carving, which overall covers an area of about 300 feet wide and 190 feet high, came to be. That lost cause myth also was to directly intimidate black people living in the South. Stone Mountain is a emblem of that mythology and of that kind of history being written by the losers. Davis. Lee and Jackson become the sort of holy trinity of the lost cause, and that's why they're on the side of Stone Mountain. Plus, the man behind the carving, Roy Faulkner. But very few people know that the chief carver who finished it and carved 90% of it was my dad. He had the skills. He was a steeplejack, tool and die maker, a welder, and he was available when the job came to him. The documentary recently premiered at the Atlanta History Center and was followed with a panel discussion. We begin today's special with the center's president and CEO, Sheffield Hale, and the center's vice president of storytelling, Christian Witherspoon, who's also the documentary's executive producer. Why did you all want to tell this story? Well, I guess I'll start. Is We started talking about Stone Mountain um, in 2016 when we started our Confederate Monuments Initiative. And we, um, and we, we developed a website around what to do about Confederate monuments in your hometown and try to give a, a, a primer as to how to contextualize them and how to think about them. In 2017, we decided we wrote a did a white paper, and Seth Euster, who's here tonight, was our uh, was helped me with that um, on the history of Stone Mountain, and we tried to get it as concise as we could and develop a timeline as well to really show what happened. After that, I got on the rubber chicken circuit and started um, giving these awful PowerPoint presentations um, all, all around, and and soon came to realize that there was only a limited number of people that I could reach with that medium, um, and who would, you know, put up with it. So um, we, COVID came along, and we were already moving to digital, and we, we decided to make a, a big in, um, investment in digital storytelling, and we hired Chris. And this was in 2020, November 2020, and the first thing we did was handed her the white paper, handed her all of my deck from PowerPoint, and said, can you do something with this? Can you tell a story about this that could be compelling? And so that is, is really how it happened. And, and part of it is we want to tell this, this history in a way that people can receive it, in a way that they can get it, without blaming and shaming. And we, we just want to tell the history straight out. And like, like Rose said, it's difficult. Uh, but that's what, um, that's what 
drove us to do it, and we thought that digital medium and film was a way to do it. Chris? Yeah, and just to, to kind of complete that thought, um, why Stone Mountain, why now? It's timely. <laughs> um, we know that it's a conversation that people are having within their communities. And, you know, as we think about what is our role as a history center and as a museum, um, you know, we see part of that role is contribute, contributing context to that conversation and really explaining how we got here. And so, um, you know, that as an institution was really important for us. Um, but on a personal note, you know, I am um, a Southerner. I am a proud Mississippian. And um, I completely understand that um, one thing that I thought was missing kind of in the context of, of how we talk about this, even at a national level, is hearing this story and hearing this viewpoint of people who live in the South and have to deal with this carving every day. Um, you know, we understand, you know, we see things like the demographics around Stone Mountain and, and how they have shifted, but those are people who still deal with that carving and the ideology that grows from it right now. And so that was really, for me, an important perspective to have as part of this documentary. And that's truly what this, this, this documentary was about, was providing perspective. You know, I would hope, it's been a hope of mine from the outset, that as you watch this film, maybe you see your own perspective, but you leave seeing one that you maybe haven't thought about um, or haven't heard before. So um, for, for, for us, I think all of that wrapped up is why we wanted to do this. How did you determine who you would get to speak? You just mentioned that you wanted folks who were here, embedded Southerners, people who have to deal with the carving every day. And you had Roy Barnes in there. We all know Governor Barnes. He could have, looked up, he could have talked the whole documentary. <laughs> he would have been here tonight, but he's taking a deposition in Chicago. <laughs> How did you determine what voices? And you had a young voice in there, too. For sure, for sure. You know, I will say this was a project that's been two years in the making. Um, from concept to what we see today. For sure, the History Center had been working on this since 2016, but this two-year process, a year was, was, a, was for kind of research and development. And as we thought about what voices to really include and amplify in this, it was really important for us to highlight voices that um, not only had the expertise, expertise and knowledge to talk about this topic, but had the connection and experience uh, with the carving itself or these ideas. And so for us, that was top of mind. I mean, it's, it's the reason that we have this interesting um, exploration of both Donna and Cynthia talking about their fathers kind of through the context of this monument and this issue. And I think that speaks to just how important this issue is, like I said, within communities. We can't really just relegate it to a carving. You know, so many people have a connection to it. And that is something that we thought was um, worth worth exploring. So yeah, that, that was, again, top of mind for us as we thought about what voices to really amplify here. Sheffield, was there some information or was there an interview that you all wanted to get that you didn't? Well, you know, if you, if you look at the timeline we have online and you look at any of my presentations, there's a whole lot of stuff that, that I love to talk about that's not in here. Um, and thank God for you. Um, that didn't all make it. But you can go to our website, and it's all there. And how deep you want to go, and that's one of the things that makes us a little different from a lot of films. We have a website, and it's got footnotes in it, and it's got additional places for you to go get additional information. It's got more stories. We've added stories on there. We've got one about the UDC and the Ku Klux Klan that's already up. We're gonna, we've got one coming shortly on the UDC and textbooks in Georgia. Um, all subjects that Karen Cox, who's here, is an expert on the United Daughters of the Confederacy, um, has, has written on extensively. Um, but we're going to have a lot of that attached to our website. So there, there's, it's, it's a living, breathing website. There's more to come. Um, one of the things that I would have liked to have pointed out more was the crazy juxtaposition of when it was carved. Remember, it was bought in 1958. The carving didn't start until 1964. Mm -hmm. They couldn't figure out how to do it, right? They were trying to figure out, they wanted to do it, but it was, there was a lot of engineering issues correct, um, at that time. So when did they start it? They started it just days after Lyndon Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act, or the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And then the carving continued on from there through the whole Civil Rights Movement. And so when 
when Selma is happening, they're carving the torso of a horse. Um, when other things are happening, there's an article in the Atlanta paper about how Stonewall Jackson's horse looks like a mule. Um, people are really upset about that. And there's a big debate. But, you know, in the meantime, you've had Dr. King get the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, and a lot of things have happened in, in the summer of Mississippi. All that stuff had happened at the same time. So there's all this what younger people would call today a bad look or being tone deaf. They were, extra, they were just deaf. Um, but it's interesting. How does that happen at the same time? So anyway, those are kinds of things I'd like to go off down a rabbit hole on. Kristen, what about you? Yeah, you know, much of the same. You know, certainly each of these sections could have been a documentary on their own. And um, there, again, when we thought about what to give time to, um, we really wanted to, to be able to highlight, again, things that, as Sheffield says, we had the, re the receipts for. <laughs> and so, you know, thinking about the lost cause and how it was perpetuated um, and the role of, of, of women and the United Daughters of the Confederacy in that and how it wasn't just through monuments. Um, it was meant to permeate um, educational systems and to, to really permeate several areas of the society. You know, that is a fascinating point that we didn't get the opportunity to really delve into. Um, and, you know, the idea, I talked a lot with Cynthia about what is the next generation looking for in this conversation. And one thing that we talked about a lot was, again, this generation wants to know, you know, how did we get here? Like, explain it to us, explain it to, you know, to them. And so, again, it's the reason that Sheffield mentioned we have created a body of resources so that as soon as people hop out of seeing this film, they are able to begin to read more, read timelines, and get more context, um, even more out, even outside of what they see here. What does this mean for the Atlanta History Center and its role beyond just being this curator of, of history now that you're in the documentaries? Because now we expect one next month as well. <laughs> Not quite next month. Um, <laughs> but I think for us, you know, we, we look at it as an opportunity to reach new audiences and, to be completely honest, to stay relevant. Um, you know, as we think about what's our role, again, in the 21st century as a museum, you know, Sheffield talks a lot about this being an exhibition in another form. And we recognize that to... Um, to, to engage these audiences, engage this new generation that Genesis talks about. So, you know, so clearly um, we have to meet them where they are. And we think this is an opportunity for us to, to do that and to play in that, in that space. So um, this all falls under the umbrella of the Atlanta History Center's um, broader digital initiative, um, Atlanta History Center Originals. And so under that umbrella, we plan to tackle issues outside of Stone Mountain. Um, this year it's a film, next year maybe a podcast, um, but you can certainly look forward to a lot more content in that vein. Sheffield? Yeah, and, and one of the things I've learned is how to be patient. Um, it's not my long suit. Um, this took two years, and you, and you can see the quality, it mattered. And, 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 and so I have learned that patience. And so a podcast and other ways of, of reaching people are on the horizon, another documentary, and a lot of shorts. So you can go to our originals page and see a lot of the things we've already done, but there's a lot more to come. One of the things I'd like to, you know, ask each of you to do, if you would like to, if you liked it or didn't like it, but want to share it, please do, um, because one of the ways this will get around is it's live now. It just went up on the website um, while the film was going on, and you can forward it to friends and say, you know, please watch it. It's not boring. Sheffield Hill, President and CEO of the Manager Center, Christian. <laughs> Hold on, Christian. <laughs> uh, by the way, Christian Witherspoon is the Vice President of Digital Storytelling. And you're listening to a special closer look from WABE in Atlanta. Monument, the untold story of Stone Mountain. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, 
you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Today's special program comes from the recent premiere of an Atlanta History Center documentary, Monument, the untold story of Stone Mountain. The mountain features a carving of Confederate leaders from the Civil War. Jefferson Davis, who was president of the Confederate States from 1861 to 1865, and Generals Robert E. Lee and Thomas Stonewall Jackson. It's 400 feet above the ground. The mountain, which is millions of years in age and located in the small DeKalb County city, which also bears the same name. But Stone Mountain would ultimately become the largest Confederate symbol associated with what's referred to as the Lost Cause. That Lost Cause myth also was to directly intimidate Black people living in the South. Stone Mountain is a emblem of that mythology and of that kind of history being written by the losers. Davis, Lee, and Jackson become the sort of holy trinity of the lost cause, and that's why they're on the side of Stone Mountain. We now turn to the panel discussion after the documentary's premiere. I'm going to bring out some of the voices and faces that you saw in the documentary. Let's welcome Genesis Riddick. The Honors Journalism major at Temple University. She's going to be a journalist. Gordon Jones, Senior Military Historian and Curator here at the Atlanta History Center. Donna Faulkner Barron, daughter of Roy Faulkner, Chief Carver for Stone Mountain Carving. Dr. Cynthia Neal Spence, Associate Professor at Spelman College. So thank you all. Don, I want to start with you. Tell us about Daddy, not the carver. Tell us about Daddy. Well, when I was a senior in high school, I had a gentleman come and pick me up for my date. Well, in our household, we were told to be home at 10 p.m. I was not. <laughs> you, you want to fit? Uh, now, is this a, for friendly? <laughs> Got some kids in here. <laughs> so um, when my date brought me home, my dad was sitting on the front porch with a shotgun across his lap. So my date did not walk me all the way to the door. <laughs> he left, and I never dated him again. <laughs> that was daddy. But my dad was um, a good Samaritan. In our community, we lived on a dirt road uh, one mile from the major highway. And anybody who needed any help in the neighborhood, he would be there. He provided uh, a bobcat to help move gravel and dirt. He used come-alongs to pull down trees for people. And when people didn't have money or food, he gave it to them. What did he say to you about being the carver of Stone Mountain carvings? Did he talk about the controversy? Did he, did, what was his viewpoint? Well, I was 13, so I wasn't interested in the carving. <laughs> I was using my uh, radio and watching my TV, so um, when we went to school, um, Daddy had already left for work. When he came home, we were already in bed. So the only time I really got to spend time with my dad as a young teen is when we went on our family vacation to Daytona Beach once a year in August. Mm. And I'd always come back just burnt from one end to the other. He never talked about it? He never talked about the carving? 
no. Daddy was a very private person, unless he had something special to say to you. What about your mother? Did she ever talk about the carving? Oh, she told him not to do it. She said, you cannot do that carving. And he said, honey, you find a way to deal with it. And she did. You know what she did? Every morning at 5 o'clock, she'd get up, cook him two scrambled eggs, sausage, homemade biscuits, made him a sack lunch, and sent him on his way. That was it. That was it. And when he came in, you know, they just small talk, but there wasn't much about the carving. Gordon, before you came on, I was telling the audience about a conversation I had with another professor who talked about, you know, listen, history is uncomfortable. And listening to you tell this story from an academic, from an expert standpoint, but I'm curious, how often do you get people to come to you and want to challenge that and say, well, you're not telling the whole story. And when they say that, what story are they saying you're not telling? Thanks, Rose. I think usually when folks come and say that you're not telling the whole story, uh, they're usually referring more about the, the Confederate story. And um, they, they want to um, talk about the, the sort of the positive sides, if there can be mm-hmm. said about that, uh, particularly of the three individuals that are on Stone Mountain of, of Jefferson Davis and, um, and Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. And it's also one of those things where you hear a great deal about, um, you know, how, the, how noble these individuals were, what they managed to accomplish. Uh, the, the, the thing is, of course, is that in that conversation, there's really not as much of a discussion about slavery or anything along that lines. Now, here's the thing. Um, what I find funny is that, um, you know, Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson especially uh, were really very kind of private individuals. They weren't into self-aggrandizement, and I think Lee would have uh, really been upset to see his uh, likeness on the side of a mountain 90 feet tall. But it's not about Lee and Jackson. It's about what Americans wanted them to be, which was heroes. And we're not just talking about whites in the South, we're talking about whites in the North as well, because by the time you get to the 1920s, uh, these men have become, in essence, American heroes. And Americans like to see heroes. And this was the South's claim, the white South's claim on having heroes. Can you take our, our audience through the state legislature in that time in the mindset of we're going to pass this law so that no matter what, nothing can happen to this, this carving? It is a law. Sure, and I, and I, I think that's, that's a really good point, and it's worth remembering. Um, you know, in the, in the very early days before the state legislature was involved, when it was just Helen Plain, and Helen Plain, you saw in the film, her um, uh, husband had been killed in the war. Uh, she, in 1914, among other things that she was writing to promote uh, the idea of this memorial, said, you know, it's time for us to no longer think about these perishable local monuments. In effect, we need something that's going to be so permanent and so national that, that no one will ever be able to, quote unquote, take it away from us. And here she is at the, at the end of this period, uh, toward the end of the big period of Confederate monument, to monument building. Um, and she says, you know, we, we need even more on the landscape. And that, despite fits and starts, that's what we have. It is a, it, it is a monument of, of that not only affects us as Georgians, but it's about the United States. And the state legislature 
I think at the time was also shared the same fear, the fear that someone would come along and take away off the landscape their claim of the righteousness of the Confederate cause. And they saw that as a, this is, this is the statement that we will leave for all time. Professor Spence, you heard what Gordon just said, and, and often we hear people in defending uh, these memorials and statues, they say this is, this is heritage, it's not hate. And you hear that, you've heard that before. Sure, sure. And your response. You know, um, and I spoke about this a bit in the documentary, and it's, you know, when they say it's heritage, they really are talking from an emo a place of emotion, and they're talking about protecting something of um, meaning for them. And so I have to acknowledge that this does, in fact, have meaning for certain individuals. But yet, when we think about what that meaning what the significance and the impact of these symbols that they choose to hold on to, I believe that they don't necessarily see them in a larger scope. And to see how what they're holding on to was really a, a lot of hate. Um, it was a period of history that caused great trauma and is still contributing to great trauma. And so I often want to ask those individuals to really engage in kind of a self-introspection about why would you want to hold on to something that has such a history of hate and trauma surrounding it, and at the same time say that you know, this is a value of a particular group, because normally when we think about what people value, we think about goodness and um, the principles of whatever their faith traditions are. And so I, you know, these are difficult conversations, as I mentioned, and and you know, sometimes I will in fact push the conversation, but oftentimes I just kind of sit and try to reflect on what is it about this individual, about the, these groups that required them to want to hold on to such a hateful period of our history. And what about for those who say, well, let's leave these monuments and statutes, let's leave them with contextual markers, maybe place, let's leave them so that is, we can talk about it and have this, this conversation, this inclusive conversation for Genesis generation and, and others. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that is, uh, that's a strategy that could in fact be explored and to make certain that all sides are heard um, when, we're, when we are recognizing this history. So we, make, we have the markers, but we also have programming that's associated with those markers to make certain that individuals really do understand the history. So we move from the monument to a larger discussion about why these particular um, statues or other um, signifiers have been glorified and, and, and the ways in which certain groups wish to have them glorified. And so not divorcing or denouncing their interests, but asking them to place that interest within a larger discussion about the significance of those markers. So I would not be necessarily opposed to that strategy. You need a huge market, though, for Stone Mountain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you need a huge marker. I, I think you need a lot. I, I think Stone Mountain might even um, consider even becoming a center for truth, racial healing, and justice. Yeah. Genesis, that what we just talked about, that viewpoint of, OK, let's have some contextual markers, or let's use this as a teaching tool. How do you see these Confederate statues and memorials and Stone Mountain, is, is it enough to keep it there or do you want them gone? Personally, I think that it would be more, it would be a lot better to have them be placed in historical archives, museums, places where you get a level of intelligence, education about um, things that went down in history. Um, and even now, we are 
living in history and the removal of these monuments um, and these markers um, will go down and need to be discussed as well. Why did these communities come together to try to remove these things? Um, and why is it such a controversial discussion that you know causes a lot of emotion, a lot of debate? Um, and so that, I think that's my, that's my opinion. Yeah. You participated though. You said you were you, you had no idea growing in Decatur and in downtown. You had no idea what you were walking past. You were passionate about it. What was that experience like for you as a young person? I mean, you know, growing up, I have always, always learned about like the South's history. Obviously, being at um, one of the centers um, of it. And I think, you know, growing up, I've always recognized that obelisk being there, being present um, in my life, because it's, it's in um, the square, is what we mm -hmm. call it. And it's a very popular place that students go, that, you know, tourists go, that people go to hang out. There's plenty of restaurants and just a green space that are available. So I think when we were sit when I, when I first realized what exactly what it was, because I never had the time to stop and pause and say, like, what is this, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I realized, you know, I don't think that's very acceptable, especially because Decatur, um, you know, the area I was living in, um, I would say is very diverse um, and has a huge African-American population um, and has always worked towards um, being real about ourselves, our community, our history, but also being as inclusive as possible. Um, and I think that that obelisk being present there um, was definitely holding it back. Let's talk about how we have these conversations. And what do we take from them? Donna, your father was the carver. Um, you said he didn't talk much. But you said, I want people to know who he was. You still feel that, do you still feel, rather, that there is some blame towards him that's unfair just because he was the carver? Or unfair, or unfairness aimed toward him, rather? Well, not, not that many people know that he carved Stone Mountain. That's my journey right now, mm -hmm. is to share that. Um, everyone knows about Gutson Borglum and Augustus Lukeman, and Walker Hancock was the advising sculptor. But very few people know that the chief carver who finished it and carved 90% of it was my dad. He had the skills. He was a steeplejack, tool and die maker, a welder, and he was available when the job came to him. He wasn't hired to do the carving. He was hired to erect the um, scaffolding, I mean, not the scaffolding, the uh, shaft for the elevator for the carvers to go up and resume the carving once the mountain was purchased by the state. So he was just doing a job. How do you plan to tell his story? just like I'm doing now. I go out, I share my story, make people laugh, tell them what a character he was, and let everyone know that he loved that mountain. It was dangerous. He did fall. Mm -hmm. He fell about 20 feet. And by a miracle, by God, he was saved. So that's why I say he was destined to complete this carving is because if he wasn't, he would have fallen to his death. Professor Spence, how do we have these conversations? Yeah. If the end result that's for some people they want the carving, the carving's gone, they want it blasted. As of right now, that doesn't seem like it's gonna happen. So how then do we have this conversation? And what is that conversation gonna be now? It's there, we know the history of it. What's next? You know, I, I think um, that we have to engage in what we call, and at Spelman, we have a site for truth, racial healing and transformation. And one of the practices is what we call racial healing circles. And it's when you bring together individuals from varied racial um, groups, identities, 
to talk about issues of race, but you first began with common ground. And so, you know, I didn't know Donna before this process, but it's clear that the thing that we hold in common is that we loved our daddies. Yeah. You know, we loved our daddies. <laughs> daddy have a shotgun for somebody? My daddy had a shotgun too. <laughs> but they were, you know, they were hard working men. Yep. Donna's daddy had a particular craft, and um, I certainly admire the craft that your father had. I mean, he had skills, a skill set that I certainly admire, and I can say that. My father was a hard-working black man, you know, a man of a particular generation who did everything he could to provide for his family and to protect his family. And his mode of protection was really trying to help us have a certain sense of racial consciousness. And so I appreciate that. And I can appreciate what he did for me so that I can still value Donna's daddy and her love for her daddy. But yet I have ideas and questions about how he used his craft. But he probably was just like my daddy. It was a job. Amen. And he went out to earn money for his family. So that would be a place, a point of common realities that we would have before we dealt with more difficult discussions. So we find common ground. Okay. Gordon, I moved here in 1996, and, and my vision of Atlanta, outside of watching the Dukes of Hazard in Georgia, uh, <laughs> I knew about Ebenezer, I knew about the legacy of civil rights, I, I knew that. For the outside world, still looking at Georgia, and there's still this perception of certain southern states, let's be really clear, that still exist. And they, the first thing they say is, why do y'all still got that mountain, and why do you still have this when we have these conversations in from your lens as someone who studies history, is it that Georgia has to get rid of that mountain to move, mountains move, the perception of what people think about a southern state like Georgia? Does the carving have to go? Thanks for the, for the question because that, that was one of the points that I wanted to make is we're in Georgia, we're, we're Atlantans, and uh, what I said earlier about Hel Helen Plain, you know, wanting this to be a national monument, let's, let's think about this for just a second. All right, here we are in Atlanta, which is the last great turning point of the American Civil War, the Union victory that put Lincoln over the top to continue the war for Union and emancipation. Here we are in Atlanta with literally this largest Confederate monument in the world right in our backyard. Here we are in Atlanta, uh, the, the birthplace uh, and the training grounds for so many of our civil rights leaders. Here we are in uh, Atlanta and Georgia, and here we are, you know, a battleground state in the national political arena, something that I'm sure General Sherman would have taken a, ch a chuckle to. Um, so again, this, this is not just something that is a a local. This is not one of those perishable local monuments. Mm -hmm. This is a bit. What else is out there like this? Yeah. Uh, Mount Rushmore, uh, the Crazy Horse, uh, Lincoln Memorial, the folks who were initially carving Stone Mountain in the 20s certainly made that comparison. Uh, that memorial had just been completed in 1912. So I, I guess what I'm what I'm going for here is let's let's do talk about the magnitude of this thing. I think we are way too early to be talking about any kind of of a of a resolution on something that is that big of a part of the national landscape. Really? We're still very much at the point of just informing people. And I think, you know, when Donna says, you know, nobody even knows that my dad made the carving. That's true. Not even no, People don't know uh, that the thing wasn't finished until 1972. People don't know that it's protected by state law, which is one of the points that we wanted to make. I, we're, we're still very much in a point of 
let's be honest with what we have and make an informed decision because otherwise you're talking about, you know, if, if, you, if you start, the, if you think about the engineering and the work that would go into whatever change you might want to make, in, including contextualizing, including putting a great big giant panel there, you know, that's a lot of work and a lot of money. We better have thought that thing out before we do it. Mm -hmm. Well, they, they took the time to put it up. One might argue then, you know, it's 2023. Was, if it was up to me, we put Gladys Knight, Otis Redding, and Outkast <laughs> on the mountain, but it's not up to me, but, you know, that's just Rose Scott's. Uh, it's, it's 2023. You said it's too early. Well, when is a good time then? I mean... The legislature is changing. Is changing, you know. It... Well, we're we're making that time. Okay. I mean, we're creating that environment right now, and that's that's where the Atlanta History Center needs to be. Uh, when when it comes to current issues with historical roots, and you don't get any as big as this. This is one of the biggest that you'll ever have. Mm -hmm. Then we need to be out there. Uh, not just, uh, you know, blowing the dust off of books and being the traditional museum that, that some people perceive us. No, we need to be out there leading this discussion and filling in those uh, places where people don't, you know, people don't know. And let's, let's, the best way that you can respect your ancestors and your, your built environment is to be honest with them. Mm -hmm to listen to what they said in their time and in their place and what was their motivations. And when you have come to that, then you will have a better idea of what to do in your own times and in your own circumstances. And you will, if you, we, we want everybody to try to just listen and, and learn and talk and maybe develop a little bit of empathy with somebody who maybe hasn't had your same experience or somebody that may disagree with you. That's, that's where we need to be. Genesis, when you hear what Gordon says in terms of where we are now, uh, and then your generation is going to be a big part of this. Mm -hmm. So what is your response to how do we have these conversations, listening to the other side, having empathy? Is that something that resonates with you? I mean, absolutely. Um, and I, don't, I, I do acknowledge that we are in a time of deep polarization, um, whether it's the information we receive um, online or um, based off of the news channel that we watch. I know that it's very hard, especially at this point, um, to have people come together in the same space um, and be able to discuss these things um, without it getting to be an uh, issue that you can't really turn back from, right? Um, and so I think that, I mean, I, I agree. I think the time is being made to have these discussions. Us being here today um, is extremely important and essential. Um, and I think we just need to continue to have these raw discussions. We can't shy away from, like, these deep conversations that we may have at you know, family dinners or anything like that, even if people do get emotional, even though people may get angry, um, it's important that, yes, we understand um, our, uh, the, the different experiences, the different backgrounds we're walking from, um, and be able to, we don't always have to come to a, a compromise, because I feel like that might be too sim simplistic, mm -hmm. but at least we made the time to listen to each other um, and we can go from there. Judith is going to be a great journalist. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Professor, you mentioned getting to know Don, Donna. And what is your hope that people take away? You don't want to tell people what to think or how to think, but what is your hope in terms yeah. of this documentary? Well, well, first of all, I just have to commend the Atlanta History Center but this is bold. This is a bold move. So I just, yeah. 
and you know, you don't know what you don't know. And hopefully the individuals in this audience have learned something about the history of Stone Mountain and that they will take what they've learned and share it with others because it's ignorance you know, that really keeps us apart and that causes prejudice and, and racism. And so I think that we should all see ourselves as teachers and that we can share this information and continue to applaud efforts like the Atlanta History Center and to push other organizations to actually tell the truth. Because until we tell the truth, we cannot have racial healing and transformation. It starts with the truth. And we know that the truth has been altered by people in power. And so we all probably learn from some of the same history books that omitted certain parts of our history. And so I hope that individuals here will have seen this as a major history lesson that they will go and share with others and that they'll push our institutions to tell the truth about our history so that we can move toward a more beloved community as we prepare to celebrate you know, the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. You know, in just um, next week. And that's what we have to do. We have to acknowledge the problem in order to address it. If you don't admit you have it, you'll never be able to solve it. Donna, what about you? What is your hope that people take away from this? Well, it's been a pleasure to be here. Nice to meet everyone. I was sad that my dad didn't get to meet Mr. Gordon when he was working on the... Uh... I am too. <laughs> um, I have to say that I have never really looked at that carving and thought about racial issues. And I know that my dad did not do the same thing. Uh, it was a job. He loved the South. He didn't even learn about Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and Jefferson Davis until he became familiar with that mountain. So my take is history is history. Learn from it, go forward, and let's all get along. Gordon? I, I like to think of this in terms of a challenge, an ongoing challenge. Uh, we will never be a perfect union, but as long as we are striving and trying to achieve a perfect union, then, then we're on the right path. I'm also uh, called, uh, I, I, I comes to mind one of my favorite quotes from Abraham Lincoln. And that is, that it really encapsulates the American struggle, the, the experiment in democracy that we are. And he said, uh, this is in 1855, he, he said, um, you know, we started this country by saying all men are created equal. We now practically read it, all men are created equal except Negroes. When the know-nothings get control, and that was the nativist party, it will be all men are created equal except Negroes and Catholics and foreigners. When it comes to this, I would prefer immigrating to some other country, to Russia, for instance, where despotism can be taken pure and without the base alloy of hypocrisy. The Confederate States of America had an answer to Lincoln's question, and that was, that that assumption of all men are created equal was an error. That's the struggle. And there is a through line all the way through. 
Stone Mountain is the sort of the, the, the landscape, the memorial landscape, which gives us the opportunity to address this challenge. That's the way I like to think about it. Thank you. Genesis. Genesis, what is your hope people take away from this? Overall, I would say that it is essential, as I said before, that we continue to have this conversation. Um, I know personally, I don't take for granted the people that have come before me um, who have sacrificed so much um, to the point of their own lives mm -hmm. and the lives of their loved ones um, to allow me to be able to even sit here today. Um, and I think that it's really important that we all do our part in attempting to unify us as people, as one nation, um, and continue to educate ourselves. Um, because, I mean, education is, is key to, I think, a lot of what this is now. Um, and I'm, I'm just happy that we were able to have that in this documentary today. Thank you. from the Atlanta History Center following the premiere of the documentary Monument, the Untold Story of Stone Mountain. It's available to watch free online at atlantahistorycenter.com and on YouTube. Also, we'll have a link to the film on our website as well. That is it for this special edition of Closer Look. A huge thanks to the Atlanta History Center. Our supervising producer is Tiffany Griffith. Along with producers Daniel Razel, LaShawn Hudson, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Let us know your thoughts on today's program. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of this special, catch the rebroadcast tonight at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hey y'all, I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. WABE. <laughs> Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.